ತತ್ಸವಿರ್ವರಂ ಜ್ಯೋತಿ ಪರಸ್ಯಧೀಮಿ ಯನ್ನ ಸತ್ಯೇನದೀಪೇತ್ Welcome everyone to the third chapter of Pechariki. Pechariki is an initiative for thoughts, dialogues and discussions initiated by Rastram School of Public Leadership, Rishihud University. This is a part of the 150th birth anniversary celebration of Sri Aurobindo and 75 years of India's independence. The title of today's topic is the spirit of Indian nationalism. According to Sri Aurobindo, nation was not just a superficial construct, but also had a subtle body embodying the thoughts, the literature, the philosophy, the mental and emotional activities, the sum of hopes, pleasures, aspirations, fulfillments, the civilization and culture. His vision of nationalism went beyond the search for a merely political ideal and transformed it into a spiritual goal, a way to recover Indian thought, energy and greatness. not only for india but for the cause of the whole world this chapter titled the spirit of indian nationalism will reflect upon this idea of nationalism in the light of sri aurobindo's works a panel discussion will expound on the various manifestations and contestations of nationalism as an idea and experience in india and the need to preserve its indian spirit with this i welcome dr sampadananda misra professor at rastram school of public leadership to open the floor he is a sanskrit scholar and a lifelong student of sri aurobindo's philosophy and works welcome sir namaskar to all of you as it is mentioned that this vaicharike uh, this is the third chapter uh, in the first chapter we started with sri aurobindo's educational philosophy and uh, in the second chapter we did a discussion on varna jati and the integral perspective and today we have the discussion on sri aurobindo's nationalism the topic of nationalism and uh, we know that the very foundation of sri aurobindo's uh, political philosophy is his whole idea of spiritual nationalism and uh, the divinity of the motherland so that is that is the reason that why chitranjan das he called sri aurobindo very rightly as the uh, the poet of patriotism the the prophet of nationalism and the lover of humanity and in sri aurobindo's political philosophy we see and especially when we contemplate on sri aurobindo's this whole concept of nationalism so in 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 one of his public meeting in mumbai in bombay in 1908 he said uh, nationalism is not a mere political program nationalism is a religion that has come from god nationalism is a creed which you shall have to live if you are going to be nationalist 
if you were going to ascend to this religion of nationalism, you must do it in the religious spirit. You must remember that you are the instrument of God. And we see in Sri Aurobindo's life, when he talked, whether he talked about the complete political freedom or complete independence, or whatever he has talked about the spiritual uh, nationalism and the ideal of human unity, every phase of his life and what he wrote right in the beginning to his wife, Muranalini Devi, that as an instrument of God, he played his role as an instrument of God. And then we learn a lot from his life and from his writings, what is the right spirit with which we should worship the mother India. So with this note, I welcome you all. And we're very happy that we have today uh, Bharat Guptaji and Anirvan Ganguliji to uh, give the keynote and uh, guide us in this matter. And then we have Devdiv Ganguly and Raghava Krishna to contextualize and uh, take uh, lead the discussion on, on this topic. So thank you all. And then we look forward to a very fruitful uh, discussion on this very important topic, nationalism. Thank you. Now I welcome Professor Bharat Gupt to deliver the inaugural address. Professor Bharat Gupt is a former associate professor in English at University of Delhi. He is an Indian classicist, theater theorist, sitar and surbahar player, musicologist, cultural analyst, and newspaper columnist. He believes villages and pilgrimages are the best places in India. Presently, he is a trustee and executive member at Indira Gandhi National Center for the Arts, IGNCA, New Delhi, under the Ministry of Culture, Government of India. I welcome, sir, to deliver the inaugural address. Namaste, sir. Namaskar to everybody. Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha. I am deeply honored that I have this opportunity to speak at the function of the Rashtram School which is a great upcoming center now. And I am so glad that I have this opportunity to address a subject which is of great importance in this very stressful hour, because our nation is facing all kinds of grave challenges today. So we must remember what our great men in the past have said about Indian nationalism and about India is a, as a nation, because it is that which is going to steer us out of the storm that has engulfed us these days. So I begin a small talk of 20-25 minutes and tell you something about uh, what Shri Aurobindo had to say. Of course, he has written volumes and volumes on it, as you all know. So I have chosen to speak upon what seems to me to be his very first statement, as you all know. That was the Uttarpada speech. And to my mind, 
that speech uh, is one of the earliest one of the earliest statements and that statement is something that holds right till the end of his writing because it is on the spirit of that statement that he expounded we have also to see what was the uh, national situation at that time and why he had to make or rather why he had this great realization about the spiritual role of sanatan dharma and why he made this very unequivocal statement today we are all confused and besotted with ideas which uh, whenever we talk of sanatan dharma ideas which encircle us in the, in the name of plurality in the name of secularism in the name of modernity or ethnic diversity but the real crux of what shri aurobindo said had taken into account all those things even at that time and as a matter of fact the very debates in which we are engaged today had very well begun around 1880s especially when 1885 people like sir sayed ahmed had said very explicitly that as and when the british leave then hindus and muslims will not be able to live together and that they are something like two different nations so it was as early as that that uh, something like a two nation theory had come into being it was not with jinnah please it was with sir sayed ahmed historically it is known and it is at this point that great men like shri aurobindo took up the challenge and in fact it is shri aurobindo who stated the whole thing in very clear terms great men like vivekanand by whom of course aurobindo was inspired had looked upon the things more in spiritual and cultural terms but shri aurobindo gave us an idea of sanatan dharma which covered nationalism in very explicit terms now shri aurobindo as you know when he came out of uh, the alipur jail after serving there for one year gave this speech and he said that when he went to jail at that time the whole country was resounding with the sounds of vande mataram and now he felt that is when he was out of the alipur jail that there was some kind of a brief lull and it seems that there was some kind of a disappointment at that time and people thought that the upsurge of nationalism had abated so shri aurobindo comes and gives this message and the first thing he says is that he is addressing a religious society he is addressing a religious issue but then he says that he is not going to talk about theology he is going to talk about the most important thing in the context of religion at that time 
and that was Indian nationalism. So he says that very clearly that it was Hindu nationalism that he is going to talk about and he equates it very, very clearly with Sanatan Dharma. Now, this should make it very clear in our minds that he was not going to address some deep issue about the nature of what is called Hindu religious beliefs. But because he knew that all those religious beliefs or theology or culture by which India uh, proclaims its identity is rooted in the sense of dharma. So you can find here the first statement on dharma in the context of nationalism. And it is a statement which is very clear and unequivocal. Today, after something like 70 years of Nehruvian socialism in the practice and air and political conflict and whatnot, and various other theories of nationalism, we find ourselves very hesitant in trying to accept the fact that for India, dharma is an essential or rather a fundamental concept which covers each and everything in our lives. And therefore, it has to cover our political life, our national life, our cultural life, our independence as a nation, and our progress into future. Future is very important because as Shri Aurobindo said, that we don't have to only see the sunrises of the past, but also the afternoons of the future. So the whole concept of Sanatan, something which is not limited to a single period, was stated by him. This is the first thing that he said. But what he said and explained to people was his experience. You see, I find that particular speech, which is not very long, and in terms of text, it's about uh, five, five uh, pages or so, very crucial, because Shri Aurobindo gives an account of one of the fundamental experiences of his life. And this was that when he went to jail, he was a political worker. He was a great nationalist on whom the uh, thought that sat heaviest on his mind was the freedom of India. And he felt that the freedom struggle had not begun at that time and that the goal of India's independence was far, far away. So that brought his spirit down and he didn't know how to come out of those very sad and depressed thoughts. And this was the, temp this was the uh, paramount feeling with which he went into the jail and stayed for some months. And it is there that the transformation took place.
he says that he had the great experience about which he had read earlier. He had read in the Bhagavad Gita, he had read in the Upanishads, he had read in several things, although by that time, as he himself admits, he was not a great scholar of uh, classical Hindu texts, but he had an idea, some sort of an idea. But before all that, he had this crucial experience in jail. What was this experience? The experience was all is Vasudev. So the Mahavakya Sarvamidam Khalu Brahma, which has been stated in the Upanishads and which we take to be the cornerstone of Indian philosophy, was something that he experienced. Now, this is very important. We must understand that he experienced this all. It was not something about which he thought and made an opinion or wrote a book about or formulated an opinion which he could circulate or a dogma or a political system or a thought. No, it was a direct experience. For those of us who have some inkling of what is Indian philosophy. People like us who are dependent upon the great words of sages like Sri Aurobindo and others in our tradition. For those of us who depend upon what has been told to us, we have heard that it is not a statement. It is not even a Mahavakya as stated in words but it is a swanabhuti experience by yourself which makes us realize the truth as bhartri hari has said that shiva is swanabhutyam ekamanam he is the only criteria of self-experience so this self-experience of vasudev that all is vasudev the friend and foe, brown and white, Englishman and uh, Indian, whosoever was there in the jail was one. And it is after this great experience, he also had two, he says so, he had two uh, messages from the divine. Now, this is important to understand as to why Shri Aurobindo said that Indian nationalism is Sanatan Dharma or that India is Sanatan Dharma and Sanatan Dharma is India because he experienced it. He himself came to understand this and he says in this very speech that all doubts were cleared, that he had been some sort of a doubting person, semi-atheist, questioning man. But after this profound experience, all doubts were cleared and he was able to understand and see and perceive and feel and rise to that level of consciousness in which India is Sanatan Dharma and Sanatan Dharma is India.
So what he said to his audience in the Uttarpada speech is something he experienced firsthand. The important thing which he came to realize was that he should give up the anxiety of winning the freedom for India and that he was assured that Vasudev tells him that he has started the work and Aurobindo is only a small speck in that great movement and out of these two messages he Vasudev tells him to do the work of Vasudev number one and number two that India is Sanatan Dharma. So it is a divine message, so to speak, that Sri Aurobindo has. This is the realization in terms of Swanubhuti and it is in terms of this great understanding. Now you can see that this is a definition of India. This is an idea of India. You know, this, this phrase idea of India is very common and many people have written books about uh, this phrase of taking uh, a kind of a rest, resting place on this uh, phrase idea of India. I would say that to describe the experience of Shri Aurobindo, it is better to say that it is neither a perception of India for Shri Aurobindo nor a view of India, nor just an experience of India, but the deepest realization of the truth of India. So the truth of India, what really India is, is known to him through that experience in the Alipur jail in that one year period and that changes his whole perception as a political worker. Because at this point, he was still uh, somebody who was striving for the freedom of the country and working as an individual, as a political person as well, apart from all other things. It is later on that he decides to go in for yoga only and to work at a higher level. But at the terrestrial level, this was the work still being done and this was the message given to him. Now, what is the significance of this message? The significance of the message is that here you have a deep vision of India as Sanatan Dharma. And this was the idea which was taken up later on by uh, Veer Savarta. As a matter of fact, when you read the 1923 work Hindutva uh, by uh, Savarkar, he at that time when he published his book, he gave his name as Maratha. Then you find that it is essentially, it is essentially the same vision. Of course, there are some uh, seeming differences 
Now, please mark my words. I am saying seeming differences because Sri Aurobindo states in the Uttarpada speech that Sanatan Dharma and rise of Sanatan Dharma and rise of Sanatan Dharma in India is the rise of India, but it is not just for this territory or this uh, piece of land, so to speak, called India, but it is for the whole world. And he makes it many, in many words very clear that Sanatan Dharma is neither a theological, a mere theological category, because it has the capacity to, to include the well-being of the whole cosmos or all Srishti. So you can see that definition of Sanatan Dharma as given by Sri Aurobindo is not nationalistic in terms of the nation state only. It is not in terms of a region of the world. It is not just in terms of the cultural or ethnographic or historical experience of a nation called India. But through the agency of all these, it is for the whole of the world. And he says that if they, there is rise of India, then that is going to benefit the whole world. So what we today in various other words like Vasudev Kutumbukam, etc., are stating it again and again, Sri Aurobindo had made it very clear that this vision of Sanatan Dharma is the Dharma, is the vision of the eternal. And what is eternal is not something which can be uh, closely demarcated within a territory, but it is something which has to be for the whole of humanity. So this is the definition of Sanatan Dharma. Now, by the time we come to say 1920, many other political changes happened. As I mentioned right in the beginning of my talk, that the two nation theory had been stated. And it is as a counter to that limited vision of two nation, Hindu versus Muslim, that Sri Aurobindo had given this great profound experience about the truth and reality of India. That is why he calls it Sanatan Dharma. Later on, by the time we come to Savarkar, Savarkar gives it a nationalistic definition in terms of a territory. Now, this had become very important because in 1920, something very uh, significant happened. It was not only significant, it was almost tragic. And that was a repetition of the two nation theory in a different form, which was unfortunately at this time endorsed by none other than Mahatma Gandhi. That is in 1920, Mahatma Gandhi had talked about the Khilafat and he had encouraged the Indian Muslims to pledge faithfulness and service to the Khalifa of the Ottoman Empire. 
and to go and fight for him. And I think it was around 30 or 40,000 Indian Muslim youth who had gone there to fight for him. So when this idea that people can go from outside the Indian subcontinent and go and serve a uh, leader of the Ummah or leader of the Caliphate or the Caliph, Khalifa as he was called, and when a leader like Mahatma Gandhi was endorsing it, supporting it, then certain boundaries had to be made and Savarkar came up with the idea that Indian nationalism is to be defined in terms of Hindu and Hindutva. And then of course you all know that he gave the definition uh, of Hindu. Asindu Sindhu Pariyanta Yasse Bharat Bhumika Pitra Bhumishcha Punya Bhumishcha Sahindu Riti Smrata The idea that this is the territory and one who considers this as his fatherland, motherland and is his holy land is Hindu and this is Hindu nationalism. But remember that Savarkar is only taking a piece out of Shri Aurobindo. Shri Aurobindo has given the deepest, the widest and the fullest, the fullest meaning of the whole thing. And it is this fullness which we have to realize. I suppose that one, once we realize as Indians, as Bharatiyas, as people born here, as people having the faith in Sanatan Dharma, you see, not just the faith as Hindu, but the faith as a Sanatani. Sanatani, not as some Arya Samajis would like to call it in terms of person who worships Murti, not in that limited sense, but in the most wide sense, in the profoundest and the deepest sense, which Sri Aurobindo used the word Sanatandhar. So Sanatandhar then begins in terms of texts, it begins with the Rigved or the earliest text of this country, right up to the times of the modern times and the vision of the great Rishi. In terms of lived experience and culture, it is all the languages, it is all the experiences that the people of this land have. And it is also, as he said, Sri Aurobindo said, the totality of existence. So his definition, Aurobindo's definition of Sanatan Dharma is not just humanitarian. You see, it is not uh, uh, integral humanism or it is not uh, ekatmata vad, manav ekatmata vad or something like that. It is much bigger. It is something which goes to the core of existence because India has that vision. He tries to make that point and he tries to make us aware of that point. And once we are aware of it, then without any sense of uh, hesitation, we should be able to accept that the definition of Sanatana as given by Aurobindo, as given by many other saints. You see, there are hundreds of verses which have this fourth uh, uh, path or the fourth charan, dharmo esha sanatana. You see, there are hundreds of verses in Indian tradition, uh, satyam bruyat, priyam bruyat, nabruyat, satyam apriyam, etc. and ending with dharmo esha sanatana. So there are so many 
the verses in our tradition that talk about it in terms of practical enunciations. And we have to understand the depth and the expanse of this thing as given to us by Shri Aurobindo. Thank you very much for giving me a patient here. Thank you, sir, for your wonderful talk. And I don't think there could be a better explanation of India's form of nationalism other than the famous Uttarapara speech that Sri Aurobindo gave. And indeed, India's nationalism is draws from the vast repertoire of its spirituality, and which is mainly experiential rather than any kind of levels that are being thrown, as, thrown at us. Now, I would like to welcome Dr. Anirban Ganguly for his keynote address. Dr. Anirban Ganguly is director of Dr. Samaprasad Mukherjee Research Foundation. It's a public policy think tank. He is an author, political activist, and public policy analyst. He is fascinated by India's independent, independent India's political evolution and complex history. He is a scholar of civilization, politics, history, and culture. He is also the member of National Executive Committee of Bharatiya Janata Party. I welcome Sir today's keynote address. Thank you so much for this very kind introduction in front of Professor and uh, Doctor, our very dear uh, friend and elder, Professor Bharat Gupt. Unke samne mujhe scholar of civilization mat kahiye. Because uh, I have uh, my early years in Delhi. He was one of those with whom one would really have a near daily interaction. And uh, those were uh, very difficult initial years for all of us because um, in the we have seen the past decade and we have seen how the narrative of India of Bharat has built up and uh, Bharatji is one of those who have stuck to defining that Bharat which very few would define even a decade ago. Uh, so I think it's a it's a it's a great honor to be here to be able to be to listen to him <laughs> to listen to him and to see him once again especially to the rashtram school also i'm extremely thankful that uh, sampadananji insisted that i participate here uh, my younger friend uh, devdeep ganguly is also here um, i think one uh, one introduction which would be most relevant here because all the others that you have said are all ornamental but for our purpose, for this discussion, one introduction would just have been sufficient and that I have spent 20 years of my formative, my 20 formative years in Sri Aurobindo Ashram in Pondicherry. And I've had the unique fortune to have grown up uh, in the school, in the center of education established by the mother that was named after, that is named after Sri Aurobindo. And uh, I have, I don't know what I must have done, uh, what I must have done in one of my previous incarnations, but uh, I'm certainly extremely fortunate to be able to uh, have lived two decades of my life in the ashram. Uh, just about uh, two, three days ago, I was, uh, I'm now back in Delhi, but touring West Bengal, and it was extremely late at night. I was coming back from a particular district 
the national highway was uh, clogged very badly and we would have got uh, caught up for an hour uh, that's when just by an instinct i asked the convoy to take a turn and i said look uh, we can take uh, uttarpada and through uttarpada we'll have a clear road to kolkata so that saved me one hour and actually uttarpada late past midnight actually illumined the way for us to go ahead so as bharat ji was talking i was thinking we crossed the jai krishna library late at night i caught a glimpse of it and i just hope that uh, i just wish that someday it would be better maintained and taken care of someday people would realize the sanctity the historicity of that place and uh, it could perhaps again become a pilgrim spot for the arising new india uh, friends i really don't know what more can i say after what bharat ji has said because uh, and i would urge all of you to read a lot of what he has written what he has spoken of over the last few decades he has encapsulated i think so well sri aurobindo's espousal of rashtravad of nationalism especially uh, a nationalism which is not limited to its milieu or a nationalism which is not limited to its era or epoch a nationalism which is self renewal self renewing and which carries on from age to age you see it's very interesting that there are two uh, two very interesting uh, expositions one swami vivekananda's on new india and sri aurobindo in 1908 writing in his uh, piece unpublished piece in the bande for the bande mataram the bourgeois and the samurai sri aurobindo speaks about a new nationalism and if one were to look at india today at bharat today it is clearly evident that one sees the rise of that new nationalism that india bases itself on that new nationalism that sri aurobindo spoke about in 1908 and the new india that swami vivekananda speaks about is also that india that we are witnessing today i shall just read out excerpts uh, from both swami ji says let a new india arise out of the peasant's cottage grasping the plow out of the hearts of the fisherman the cobbler and the sweeper let us spring from the grocer's shop from beside the oven of the fritter seller let her emanate from the factory from the marts and from the markets let her emerge from the groves and forests from the hills and the mountains this is the new india that swami vivekananda spoke of in 1897 and very interesting to note the manner in which he says grocer shop fritter seller sweeper the cobbler the fisherman sri aurobindo writes 
about the new nationalism which overleaps every barrier it calls to the clerk as his, at his counter the trader in his shop the peasant at his plow it summons the brahmin from his temple and takes the hand of the chandala in his degradation it seeks out the student in his college the schoolboy at his books it touches the very child in its mother's arms and the secluded zenana has thrilled to its voice its eye searches the jungle for the santal and travels the hills for the wild tribes of the mountains it cares nothing for age or sex or caste or wealth or education or respectability it cries to all to come forth to help in god's work and remake a nation each with what his creed or his culture his strength his manhood or his genius can give to the new nationality the only qualification it asks for is a body made in the womb of an indian mother a heart that can feel for india a brain that can think and plan for her greatness a tongue that can adore her name or hands that can fight in her quarrel friends i think uh, you'll agree with me when i say that this is an india this is a new nationalism this is the new nationalism that we are seeing manifesting before us today in terms of expansion in terms of inclusion in terms of a rising consciousness and empowerment both at all levels be that political be that economic be that educational a churning awareness that has come about a rising consciousness that india can collectively rise can attain the past position of a vishwaguru only when all her parts all her dimensions move ahead equally equally and are empowered in uh, empowered comprehensively you know we are passing i and i always remember this we are passing through a very interesting phase it is 150th year of sri aurobindo's birth it is the 75th year of india's independence it is the centenary also of a scholar like a scholar and intellectual kshatriya like sitaram goel and we have just completed the centenary of a phenomenal and fascinating mind like sri dharampal bharat ji has seen has met and uh, closely interacted with perhaps all of them with these two that i have mentioned we have interacted with them through their books and to their thoughts philosopher ram swarup ji makes a very interesting point when he speaks about india's freedom movement and uh, i'm also extremely positive and i'm extremely hopeful when i see that even in an area which used to be the uh, stranglehold of a certain ideologically motivated historians and interpreters the history of the freedom movement of india there is a call given out of democratizing that narrative of india's freedom movement of including all those who contributed but were left out 
to start with Sri Aurobindo himself. And if one were to look at this aspect, and Ram Sorup, philosopher, interpreter of Indian traditions and parampara, Ram Sarupji says something very interesting. He says that, you know, well, the freedom movement started, the Congress was founded. It was primarily founded by, uh, in order to be able to give vent to a lot of angst that, that was developing, 1885. So that was at a very gross, material, political level. But then suddenly, but then gradually, and then all of a sudden, a turn became visible. And that was the contribution of personalities like Swami Dayanand, Swami Vivekananda, and Sri Aurobindo. They were pioneers. They were not politicians, obviously, in uh, as we understand the term today. They were philosophers. They were cultural thinkers. They spoke of God, humanity. They spoke of larger life, of truth, of Sanatana Dharma, and of Ram Rajya. And they imparted a deeper dimension to the nationalism, the rising spirit of nationalism. So when we say the, the, the new spirit of nationalism, today we see the new spirit of nationalism incarnating, embodying, or manifesting itself through the past prediction of what that spirit of nationalism would be. And if we look at the early years of the awakening of that phase, it is a very interesting aspect that the, that when, you know, there was a period when, uh, well, a large number, uh, a section of the Indian intelligentsia were, you know, the majority are educated and articulated, articulate class paid allegiance to the Western ideas. I mean, uh, in uh, much be even before Macaulay's minutes, uh, John uh, Trevlin writes that, you know, it's very interesting that uh, after a certain point or the, the summit of the ambitions of Indians whom we are teaching or whom we are orienting, the summit of their ambition is to resemble us. It's a very interesting point, a very perceptive observation that he, he made. The summit of their, of their ambition is to resemble us. It was in this period, at this stage of the awakening, and gradually when we go into the 80s, 1880s, even at that point, Freedom was obviously a very distant goal. There was no question of, you know, uh, even dominion status was being very uh, vaguely talked about. The talk about dominion status came much later. But at that point of time, for example, if one were to take uh, Gopal Krishna Gokhale's Servants of India Society, the preamble to the Servants of India Society, which stated, and you know, I'm not making a commentary on any individual leader, but it's just that I'm making a, an observation of the objective with which they pushed forward this movement. And it was that the servants of India society, if one were to take example of that, frankly accept the British connection as ordained in the inscrutable dispensation of providence for India's good, 
even if self-government within the empire was a goal which could not be attained without years of earnest and patient effort and sacrifice worthy of the cause. So basically the idea was that the, the colonial connection was preordained by providence. It was at this point of time that one can say an ancient nation was waking up. And that is where the consciousness of nationalism was infused into the movement, which was, which was hitherto a plain and simple political demand, which was a very moderated, which was a very moderate, a very attenuated political demand. And the old assumptions started getting hit. Great cultural thinkers. And there's one thing that we need to remember. They were not only cultural thinkers, they were not philosophers, they were sadhakas also who rose and they spoke of their cultural heritage, about Vedas, about Sanatana Dharma with pride. And at the same time, personalities like Sri Aurobindo gave Swami Vivekananda, gave a close, a close look at Western culture and found it wanting in deeper matters. Sri Aurobindo at the height of his political movement says, we reject the claim of aliens to force upon us a civilization inferior to our own or to keep us out of our inheritance on the untenable ground of a superior fitness. This was something which was completely lacking the new nationalism, the new spirit of nationalism brought this into the entire movement. That we have a cultural spiritual identity. We had a civilizationally a role that we played in the past. Therefore, when we demand political freedom, when a political awakening is taking place, that awakening can only be sustained, can be long-term, can be solid. If it founds, it stands itself on this consciousness that it is not only a political recovery, but a cultural spiritual recovery as well. The new spokespersons, as I, you know, as I term, taught us to look at the country and its independence struggle in a very unique way. They told us that India was more than a geographical entity, that it was a holy land, that it was a sacred land, it was a sacred trust, a spiritual idea, a power of the spirit, even a deity, not merely a piece of land. Shobindo's famous, <coughs> his famous utterance, which uh, especially many were fond, uh, many referred to it. They taught that India was rising for the truth. It embodied and, and, so importantly, India was recovering, was rising to recover her swabhava. Atma Smriti, Atma Vismriti, as Dharampalji says. Atma Smriti. And this consciousness is what was spread by 
Sri Aurobindo uh, in, uh, in later years, initiated by Swami Vivekananda and Swami Dayanand, to name a few. And this gave a deeper ideation. What happened is that this layer gave a deeper ideation to the struggle, a deeper definition of India, and it gave a deeper raison d'etre for our political struggle. In a sense, it gave a new focus to the goal and uh, to the objective. So I think it's very important to understand. And, and you know, as uh, as uh, historian R.C. Majumdar says it uh, wonderfully, refers to it. He says that, uh, and Sri Aurobindo in his tribute to Lokmanya Tilak, I would urge all of you to read that. It's an excellent tribute to Lokmanya Tilak. And R.C. Majumdar later explains it in a, uh, in a in a very interesting way, he says that gradually from a level of elitism, the new nationalism, this word new nationalism, the new party that Sri Aurobindo continuously uses in various of his writings in Bande Matra. R.C. Majumdar says that gradually from that level, the politics, the demand, the movement, the nationalist movement, the movement for freedom and independence percolated on the ground. It percolated in mandaps, in bazaars, and in roads and streets. It's a very interesting uh, definition that R.C. Majumdar gives. So we see a very interesting uh, synergy here. On the one hand, a deep dimension, adhyatmic dimension is infused into the de political demand. On the other hand, it is also brought down from the rarefied atmospheres onto the ground. In the sense, it clicks, it resonates with the masses who feel that our ways, our paramparas, our way of living, our way of worshipping, our way of our cultural way of being is something which we need to be free to be able to readapt to. And for that, political freedom is also needed. As you know, Kesi Bhattacharya in his Swaraj in Idea says it beautifully, he makes a def definition between cultural subjection and political subjection. Political subjection is something which you feel. Cultural subjection is subtle. He says it possesses you like a ghost because you don't feel it. Initially, what Sri Aurobindo did very clearly and very emphatically was to combine these two. That India needs to be free for Jagata Hitaya. India needs to be free in order to play her legitimate role globally. And India needs to be also free in order to realize her full potential at all levels. I mean, you know, uh, because otherwise it will end up as a court citation session. There's a beautiful definition in his doctrine of passive resistance. It's right here behind me in the volume. It's all marked there. A beautiful definition about statecraft, about how a country ought to be run and what kind of uh, approaches and persons and mentalities needed in order to run in order to run a free country. Sri Aurobindo speaks about, he at one point, if you look at his writings, he's concerned about 
what India is going to do with her freedom. The question of India achieving her freedom is settled, he says. But the larger question is what India is going to do with her freedom. And he uses the term, is it going to be Bolshevism or Gundaraj? <laughs> In the 30s, he uses the term Gundaraj, which we keep using, uh, you know, later on also. Now, as I see it today, if uh, we know that in 1948, Shobindo delivered his last message, uh, public message, so to say, to the Andhra University. And he had clearly stated there that his apprehensions about India pursuing power politics, developing a formidable army, evolving as a major economic power. But in the process, India forfeiting her soul, her cultural and spiritual soul, her, which sets her apart from other nations. He says the danger is there, but it will surely not happen. Friends, if we look at India today, and uh, there's one point that I keep making here, and I would urge all of you to read uh, the early editorials of, uh, of Mother India also the early editorials, 49, 1950, which was supposed to have been vetted by Sri Aurobindo and uh, then published. One sees that throughout his life, he may have uh, renounced active politics, but Sri Aurobindo was completely, apart from the epochal sadhana that he did, Sri Aurobindo was also very plugged in, to use a very, uh, you know, current terminology, extremely plugged into the politics of his days. I mean, be it, uh, be it the hegemony, the communist hegemony of his time, the war in the Korean Peninsula, invasion of Tibet, be it the partition and its aftermath, that is the entire refugee influx that was taking place, the situation in East Bengal, which was East Pakistan, the situation there, the extreme atrocities that were taking place on the Bengali Hindu refugees. His uh, concern with Kashmir, his, his concern with Kashmir, which needed to be integrated with India in order to prevent it from going into the ambit of Pakistan. His concern with India's national emblems, with India's national language, with the formation of states, his concern with the communist insurrection within free India, just after independence, all of it. If one were to look at the entire gamut of uh, the, the areas that he covered in these few years after independence, it is phenomenal. And so therefore, I have always argued that, uh, yes, uh, it was a strict, strict no politics in the ashram. Obviously, you were not expected to uh, indulge in party politics in the ashram, or you were not expected to indulge in party politics once you have taken up the spiritual life. But politics as national welfare, politics as governance, politics as service, politics as deter, you know, determining the future of India and India that he wished to, uh, the kind of India that he wished to or hoped to see, I think he was extremely closely following one needed to one needs to just go through the 
obituary that was written in the Times Literary Supplement on Sri Aurobindo or the Times of India. I think I'm I'm slightly um, mixing up, but which says that for a recluse, he was remarkably up to date. These are not the exact words, but he was remarkably up to date on the political situation in the country and across the world. So therefore, if we look at that new nationalism, and if we look at what Sri Aurobindo espoused, or the, the, uh, the positions that he enunciated indirectly, because he himself could not take a public political position, the last position that he took was supporting the allied war efforts in 1942, and uh, supporting the Crips proposal, and then the cabinet mission plan also. But post-independence, Sri Aurobindo speaks about the need for a cultural reintegration. It is there in his letter to K. Munshi when K. Munshi writes to him uh, saying that, indicating that the rebuilding of Somnath temple is, uh, he has initiated the rebuilding of the Somnath temple. Sri Aurobindo speaks about reintegration of Indian culture under modern conditions. Sri Aurobindo expresses his concern about the existence of Pakistan and the impact that it would make on India militarily, geographically, and in terms of human, uh, in, ter in terms of people. He is extremely concerned about the situation of the refugees, especially on the Eastern Front. Shobindo, throughout, when he writes about a new uh, he writes about a national education for India. He is very clear that a free India needs a new education approach. A free India needs a new education thinking. He is very clear about also, he is extremely clear about India protecting, despite partition, India protecting her geographical sanctity. And in fact, at times he come across. He, 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 at times he may come across as a hardliner. I mean, to use a, I say he comes across as a truthliner rather than a hardliner. So, if we look at this, if we look at the sequence today, seventy-five years after Sri Aurobindo gave his message on fifteenth August, nineteen forty-seven, we'll clearly see that one. There's a huge mass inclusion. The left would say, the leftists would say subalterns. We say a mass consciousness, a mass participation, an inclusive and participative approach to the creation, to, the, uh, to taking India forward. That is something which is visible today in terms of inclusivity of all kinds at all levels. Recovery of our cultural symbols, and that is evident with the building of the Ram Mandir in Ayodhya, with a large number of our Dev and Devi's Murtis coming back, being brought, being hunted out and being brought back to India and sent back to their respective places where they used to be worshipped for ages. For 108 years, 
Ma Annapurna's murti was out of India. 75 years free India, 75 years of free India, no one thought that in a land which used to be full, which never faced food scarcity, from that land, the murti of Ma Annapurna was smuggled out and there were no attempts to bring it back. So friends, when I say cultural self-recovery, this is taking place at various levels. I speak about the most visible, physical manifestation of those. Recovery of India's artifact, 75% having taken place and the largest which took place was during this period, in the last eight years. It is just not fortuitous. It is just not uh, by chance. It has a deeper symbolism behind it. There's a large corpus of literature which is being churned out, countering the India narrative or the idea of India narrative that went on for decades. It used to be only one idea of India. You had, if you, you had to subscribe to it in order to gain intellectual respectability and access. If you differed from that idea of India, and if you had your own idea of India, which was more connected to the real idea of India, you were marginalized. That is being resoundingly challenged now. We have a large number of scholars, young scholars, coming up with their research, coming up with their publications, coming up with their understanding of India, of Bharat, of India's traditions. Misinterpretation of India's parampara. Bharatji is not alone anymore. He has inspired and there's an army. There's a gradual army building up with him and behind him to counter those misperception or mis or appropriation of the India narrative by vested interest. So this, this intellectual clash, this intellectual counter is taking place. You have scholars like Minakshi Jain churning out one after another opuses, starting from uh, Vasudeva of Mathura, the latest, going back to Rash, Ram of Ayodhya, and challenging many scholars like her challenging basic basic positions which we had accepted or considered to in the last 75 years the hesitancy of respecting our religious and cultural symbols publicly is diluting and melting away and in this, I would also, cultural recovery, I would also include the bold step of the CA because it is necessary to contextualize it. The CA reasserts, rekindles in us the consciousness that we are a civilizational power, that our people who owe allegiance to the concept of Bharat Mata to the vision of Bharat Mata are spread across the world. And in times of difficulty, in times of need, it is Bharat which stands by them. This consciousness that they are our, since they look upon Bharat as their motherland, it is, it delves on us. It is our responsibility as free Bharat to stand and to buy them and to go to their succor. This is an important psychological, a very symbolic portion of our 
narrative of cultural self-recovery. We don't forsake them anymore, or we don't say that we are helpless and we cannot stand by you. The national education policy, and uh, some of you here may have had the good fortune of working with Professor Kirit Joshi, late Professor Kirit Joshi. The national education policy, the new education policy, call, call it whatever you wish to. 30 years ago, it was Dr. Kirit Joshi who had formulated the national education policy in the 1980s. It's a very interesting symbolic thing when I look back. Directly inspired and you know, uh, trained by the mother, having delved, dived deep into Sri Aurobindo's educational philosophy. And 30 years later, three decades later, India has a national education policy on the eve of Sri Aurobindo's 150th year, which speaks about the 21st century being India's century, which speaks about the need for such an education which will prepare India for the 21st century, which is not apologetic about spiritual dimension of education, which is not apologetic about the cultural aspect of education, and which feels that these are integral to an education policy that is to be followed by India. <coughs> and I don't even want to, uh, I mean, I think all of us are extremely well-versed. We are conscious about the kind of cultural spread that India has undertaken in the last few years and the kind of global support that it has received, starting from yoga to vaccine to cultural diplomacy to forming global institutions which are concerned with the future of the world, India has taken the initiative. India has brought world countries together. And this has happened and this is happening as we see it. And so therefore, in 1948, 74 years ago, Sri Aurobindo's flagging that point, that in India pursuing power politics should not forsake her deeper soul is also something which is, uh, which is being consciously addressed today. I, friends, I just had these, uh, these uh, ideas. I think the sense of Indian exceptionalism, you know, why should it be only American exceptionalism? <laughs> every, every civilization is exceptional. The sense of an Indian exceptionalism that we, we are and we want to emerge as a power, as a major power, as a relevant power, as a responsible power, but a power which has, again, something unique to give to the world in terms of not only in terms of governance models, in terms of uh, the way we manage crisis, but also in terms of contextualizing our deeper knowledge. And even in terms of the way we have, we have handled the crisis of pandemic, Western thinkers, thinkers, you know, like all on one side, Kishore Mehbubani, Francis Fukuyama, Richard Haas, all of them speak of a turn eastward post-COVID. I mean, whenever that post-COVID world comes. But it's a, it's, they speak of a clear turn eastward. Why? Because the East has been able to handle 
such a once in a crisis a once in a century crisis much better than the west has been able to and in that handling by the east india the india story is a major story this is the physical aspect on the other hand the way percolation of not only yoga but the sense that india offers indian civilization bharatiyata offers an alternative and a new and a more reliable and sustained way of living this consciousness is also percolating across the world and so therefore at the end i would like to say you know i say that my, that since we are rising since it's the spirit of new nationalism which is establishing itself we see a lot of asuric onslaught also sri aurobindo would have termed it asuric asuric onslaughts of all kinds which want to retard india's rise but obviously that rise is not uh, one cannot stop or one cannot arrest that rise anymore and more importantly the new nationalism spirit of nationalism that drives india is imbued with the essence of what sri aurobindo had envisaged and therefore india does not rise driven by that sense of a century of humiliation our large neighbor in the north drives itself by the sense of a century of humiliation since they were humiliated for a century by western powers since they were humiliated and occupied by western powers they have to rise and dominate the world india is not driven by a sense of a century of humiliation india continues to be driven by that original urge which was infused into her political movement for freedom and that urge which says india rise india rises for the welfare of the world she rises for in order to restore and maintain a balance in the world she rises in order to make the world link the world with its original essence of creation so uh, you know friend i think it was a very uh, it, it it's a very complex uh, it's a very complex topic because we each of us have a way of looking at it but for me for my current role there's something that i constantly go back to in sri aurobindo and that is in order to contextualize him in our current challenges of nation building or leading the nation and i am certain that on the 75th year of india's independence and 150th year of his birth and the 75th year of his message to free india we are resolutely moving towards that india which we, he had broadly evinced a hope in thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to be able to share some thoughts here with this very august gathering thank you so much thank you very mentions in the renaissance of india that the rise of india will come when we soak ourselves in the indian spirituality and from out from the old we create the new forms of our quality and 
several facets of our society he also mentions that it is a weak argument that how do we assimilate the several centuries of the influence we had in our culture it is generally said that we assimilate what is good and we leave out the rest but he says that this is a position of a weak point first we should strengthen ourselves then only we will be able to understand what to assimilate and what not to assimilate uh, my question to you sir before we move on to the panel discussion as we as you and we see a rise of a assertive india on a scale how do you see that we have been able to create new forms of institutions new forms of ideas that would futuristic as sri arvindo has said uh, in, in several facets of our society made we polity society or culture how do you see we are successful or are we on the right path or is gen, uh, nationalism taking a path of xenophobia xenophobia no uh, you see i'll go back for i'll go backward one is in our context nationalism can never take a uh, can never take a direction of xenophobia xenophobia is something which which in the west they are very familiar with uh, the issue is i think there's a there's a this is an intense period of journey what is nationalism in the indian context and in the context of uh, sri aurobindo and thinkers later and um, bharat ji also mentioned pandit dindayal upadhyay those who those who post independence spoke of nationalism from the bharatiya dimension one clearly sees in the spirit of nationalism in the spirit of new nationalism an assertion that we too have a right to define ourselves we have a right to shape our narrative we have a right to interpret what we stand for this is a very clear spirit this is a very clear approach in the new nationalism this was something that was denied to us it was always second hand or as uh, sitaram ji says satellite ideologies you had satellite you had you functioned we we were compelled to function as satellites of a of a different ideology whereas we ourselves we we had such a rich philosophical darshan darshan the darshanik the darshan shastras which were there we had our own as kc bhattacharya says very interestingly that you know it's all very good look we have we have read western thinkers we interpret them etc etc that's fine but have we decided have we decided where do we stand what is our position and that position could only be can only be defined from the term of india's interest from the term of india's forward movement you cannot retard india and parrot some other position i think that mentality that mindset not mentality that mindset that perception is very clearly asserting itself you speak about institutions that are, i see this as a period of youth churning and lot of symbolism lot of apparent uh, things are happening which has deep which have a deep laden with deep symbolism i mean for example your rashtran school of public leadership and governance 
what are you trying to do through this you are trying to espouse a very bharatiya approach to public leadership public policy and governance 10 years back you did not exist 15 years back nobody thought that an institution such as yours ought to be need or to be formed you had just some islands you know the this center of education in pondicherry and luckily mother refused to put it under the you know under under a board or something which you know would would completely crush his spontaneity we know what has happened to shantiniketan vishobharati today we see many such institutions coming up or there is an attempt to bring up such institutions so i see a lot of churning taking place also this is a period of churning and preparation we'll see the effect of this in another decade 75 years we did not have our own parliament building apparently it's a very mundane issue people will say oh it's politics you know let's not discuss it but why have we did not think why did we not think <laughs> that for a free india free india's parliament democracy we term it the temple of democracy should be functioning out of a building which was uh, which was constructed during the colonial era and which had no no structural affinity to what we our ethos it took 75 years to do something like that however i am not commenting on whether the structure itself will be good or bad but the fact that it did not happen and it is happening now it is symbolic anand kumar swami amongst many issues that he had raised at that time said one thing he said that free india must ensure that its public that her public buildings must reflect the ethos the architectural tradition the long architectural tradition of india it must reflect that would anyone looking today at the shastri bhavan built within a decade of india's independence say remotely that it espouses reflects the architectural soul of india and there are number of such public buildings for those sitting in pondicherry can look at the secretariat on the beach front and say whether it reflects the architectural spirit of india so you know i mean from physical manifestation <coughs> to cultural and spiritual intellectual we had neglected all of this for so many years it was not sufficient to write just write a book on the discovery of india and then call le corbusier to you know design chandigarh i mean it's okay perhaps that was what was required and even such mundane things as our airports only one building one can say that the vidhan sauda in karnataka in bangalore reflects somewhat the karna the kannada you know the, the 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 architectural essence of that phase why did we miss out on these things why were not why was not an education commission instituted right after independence saying that we want to completely restructure uh, our education structure a sanskrit commission was instituted with suniti kumar chatterjee as chairperson strong recommendations which were never implemented so you know i what i see is seven decades after all this and one can make go on making a list please listen, please read mother's interview on 26 january 1965 on republic day where she says yoga must be part of our curriculum and mother said this 50 60 70 years ago yoga must be made part yoga must be taught in schools why was that you know why 
why was it found so formidable that it did not happen so so i think there is a churning taking place there are many things that are happening now we are seeing them happening they are happening against great odds they are not happening perhaps fully some they they are being manifesting they are manifesting themselves partially the process has started and this process is bound to continue i believe this is irreversible thank you sir for so clearly putting the answer and i am hopeful that as we at rastram are part of this journey and creating the new ideas and institutions for a new india in the vision of sri aurobindo more and more people join us and more and more institutions sprang up to create the futuristic vision really grateful to you for your address and i am sure that many those who are with us in the zoom session and also watching it live would all reflect on this and join this manthan now i would like to now i would like to introduce my colleague priyank johan to moderate the panel discussion priyank is a research associate at rastram school of public leadership he has a masters from jawaharlal nehru university welcome priyank so namaskar everyone uh, thank you abhishek for the wonderful introduction i would also like to introduce two participants that we have today for the panel discussion uh, shri devadeep ganguly Uh, grew up at the Sri Aurobindo International Center of Education at Pondicherry. After completing his studies in 2004, he joined Sri Aurobindo Ashram as a full-time resident. Since then, he has been offering courses on the history, art, and culture of India, as well as on the social and political thought of Sri Aurobindo at the undergraduate level in Ashram School. He also assists the trustees of Sri Aurobindo Ashram in their administrative responsibilities. He is also Ashram's guest faculty for the module on social and political philosophy of Sri Aurobindo as part of one-year certificate course titled Sri Aurobindo: The Rishi of Indian Renaissance. Sri Raghav Krishna Ji is co-founder and associate dean. academics at rashtram school of public leadership he carries 17 years of corporate experience with expertise in leading cross functional creative product development teams after his corporate stint he moved into public policy to engage directly with india's governance needs he is a student of indian civilizational thought and is currently pursuing his phd from chinmaya vishwavidyapeet he is also the founder of tri karana learning and development solutions where he trains corporates and universities on creative product development skills such as design thinking decision making and mental models and leading creative teams uh, i welcome both of them to this uh, panel discussion on the indian spirit of nationalism the relevance of this discussion cannot be overstated uh, not only because as a nation we face grave challenges today but also because nationalism as a historical force it is part of the emotional social and political reality of our nation uh, what we have in nationalism is a very uh, motivating force motivating and uniting force the uh, role of this public discussion is to contextualize the what has been already stated the frame of sheer windows thought on nationalism so to contextualize this discussion uh, we will begin with the question of uh, nationalism 
uh, what are the different articulations of nationalism that we see in India today and what are the different contestations against it. And in these articulations, different articulations, different contestations, and the, this clash of worldviews, where exactly do we uh, locate the spirit of Indian nationalism as was envisioned by uh, our thinkers like Sri Aurobindo, Swami Vivekananda, uh, all these great thinkers. Where exactly do we locate the uh, spirit of Indian nationalism today? Uh, we will start with uh, Raghav Krishnaji. Thank you, Priyank, and uh, namaste. Uh, good evening to everyone. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's uh, with a lot of uh, uh, gratefulness and also a little bit of trepidation that we uh, try to speak uh, after somebody like uh, Bharat Gupji and uh, Anirbanji's uh, wonderful lecture. Uh, but I think uh, both the uh, both the conversations so far, or, or both the addresses so far, have actually also located in some ways uh, the question that uh, Priyanka has just posed to us. Uh, of course, the job that we have now is to take the idea of nationalism understand uh, the unique nature of India's nationalism and locate that uh, in the contestations and uh, also try and think about a way forward. Uh, but there was something distinct about uh, the characteristic of the speeches that we heard. Bharatji reminded us of the core essence of Sanatana Dharma and he uh, reminded us of Sri Aurobindo's conception of Sanatana Dharma as Indian nationalism. And that uh, rediscovering that, living that and propagating that uh, would be, you know, what we would call civilizational nationalism in, in many senses. Uh, but he also uh, qualified that uh, uh, with a statement about the current time. He said, we are in challenging times. In fact, uh, he, you know, quite, uh, you know, he emphasized on that dimension uh, quite a bit, that there are certain forces that are antithetical. And there was a bit of a, a caution in the way that he uh, brought this idea to us and a sense of urgency that uh, Bharatji infused. Uh, and contrast that with the message that we got uh, uh, from Anirbanji's uh, both drawings in the same font, uh, but there was in Anirbanji's address uh, a call for us to contextualize uh, what we are experiencing as a phenomenon. Uh, you know, we call that new India, uh, personally, perhaps not really. Uh, my favorite term, uh, but uh, he asked us to contextualize that in the uh, in the sense of where we are uh, in the historical, political, social, economic spheres, and how we are able to see a rejuvenation. And if you are able to observe that contrast, uh, although drawing from the same found and all of us going back to Sri Aurobindo's philosophy, uh, we would notice that uh, there are contestations within the fold as well, if you will. Uh, and this is uh, quite representative of the debates and the discussions that we have around what nationalism is. And I completely agree with Priyank that uh, nationalism is a hugely motivating force. Uh, it animates the very impulse of uh, all of our actions. Uh, but there is also uh, a tendency in modern nationalism uh, for all of that uh, to be equated to state building. Nationalism demands a certain kind of adherence and performance. So, uh, you know, we have to be aware of the different dynamics of nationalism and how nationalism is interpreted and how it is decoded, uh, you know, in the discourse. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, uh, you know, to, to just sort of uh, think about the uh, 
presence that Sri Aurobindo and Swami Vivekananda have in all of our conversations at Rastrum. Uh, their spirit really looms large. I think this is a great opportunity for us in the next one hour to try and cogitate on some of these aspects. I'll quickly spell out what I consider to be two or three main uh, forms of nationalism that we see today. Uh, one, of course, draws from the uh, taxonomy that uh, the West has given us. Uh, you know, there are at least four or five kinds of nationalisms that have uh, emerged in the West, starting with the humanitarian nationalism to the Jacobin nationalism to, let's say, the traditional nationalism of Burke. Uh, and finally, of course, liberal nationalism. They also interestingly have something called an integral nationalism. Uh, but the idea of integral is, uh, you know, completely antithetical to how we understand it, particularly students of Sri Aurobindo's thought. If you look at this panoply of, uh, you know, the discourse of nationalism in the West, uh, it's clearly, uh, you know, it's evident that the liberal nationalism has won the day. At least, uh, you know, it clearly is still the dominant force, although there is a lot of challenges to liberal nationalism. The institutional architecture that we've inherited, and uh, regardless of whether you consider yourself politically conservative or liberal, or you know some other kind of label that you would like to attach, the institutional setup is largely liberal nationalism. right? And, and that tries to combine the idea of individual liberty along with a strong state. Uh, and that is, of course, you know, reflected in the idea of nation states. The Contestation to liberal nationalism is coming from largely, uh, you know, what we would call civilizational state or a civilizational nationalism, which draws on the culture, on the culture dimension. And there again, uh, uh, we'll have to, particularly from our perspective as Indians, we will have to tread this discourse extremely skillfully uh, because when we inherit and use some of these terms like uh, conservative or when we try to articulate a position against liberal nationalism, espousing a cultural civilizational view. Uh, there is also the burden that we carry of the arguments that have happened within the Western Hemisphere, where they draw from the fount of their religious experience, uh, which is, again, not, uh, not the source that we draw our discourse from. So uh, in the Indian context, while there is a clear articulation of the idea of civilizational nationalism, it is important, it is imperative that we always associate that with uh, what Bharat Gupji told us today and what Sri Aurobindo reminded us all those years ago, that it is Sanatana Dharma, which is Bharatiya civilization. And when we talk about Indian civilizational nationalism, we are drawing from that form. There is also the idea of civic nationalism. Right? Uh, broadly, you could say that this is the liberal uh, paradigm. Uh, but the idea is that uh, you know, uh, we are uh, capable of employing reason. And uh, there is a, a certain kind of uh, solidity to constitution. And therefore, if you are able to uh, live uh, as a society, come together as a society uh, uh, on the basis of constitution, uh, that is the way forward. So we see these contestations. Uh, and there is also uh, within the civilizational nationalism, you see a fork in the road where there is an idea of territorial nationalism sort of gaining ascendance uh, over, let's say, the civilizational dimension. So if we were just to quickly look at the landscape, we have on one hand the templated version of liberal nationalism coming to us from the West. Uh, and now you can say that civic nationalism sort of aligns uh, itself with that in the idea of democracy and republic and constitutional patriotism. Then you have on the other side, uh, civilizational nationalism, uh, which also has two components, which are also sort of uh, having a discourse and dialogue uh, within uh, the ambit of civilizational nationalism. One is seeking to draw the uh, inspiration from uh, India's uh, past uh, and anchors itself on the Bharatiya vision. 
and the other one uh, uh, anchors itself uh, on bharat uh, but in a territorial uh, sense uh, and both of them have their own performative dynamics and i think uh, we'd explore that i'm looking forward to hear from devdeep ji on this so this idea of civilization nationalism we will be coming back to it later but first i would like to invite devdeep gangli ji to deliberate on the same question where do we locate the spirit of indian nationalism today yeah i think so firstly thank you for giving me the opportunity and uh, 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 it's really wonderful to have heard all the esteemed speakers before me so about uh, your question i think when we talk about the spirit of indian nationalism especially in the light of shirbindo uh, it's also interesting to see how uh, his writings on india and on nationalism uh, uh, change or evolve and develop from the time that he was participating in the freedom movement to his later uh, writings towards the end of his life and so when we look at the 15th august message uh, so the 15th august message is the message that shrobindo gave to the all india radio on the independence day in 1947 and he speaks about five dreams those five dreams are very indicative we don't have the time to go into uh, the five dreams now but for those of you who are interested strongly recommend that you read the 15th august message of shrobindo but it's interesting to note that he speaks about nationalism uh, is a theme which runs through uh, through that text and there is of course reference to the freedom and unity of india not a partitioned india but a, but india uh, undivided there is reference to asia the resurgence of asia and there is also the reference to the movement of internationalism so when we are speaking about nationalism i think one idea that i would like to just bring in is internationalism and very often when we speak of nationalism so especially in the way uh, raghav ji just you know beautifully gave us a very brief but uh, comprehensive overview of these different approaches to nationalism and we speak of internationalism it's often seen as if nationalism and internationalism are opposed to each other in some form it's often seen as if you cannot be strongly nationalist if you believe in the internationalist uh, you know movement or tendency and what i think is very important to understand is in the context of indian nationalism especially when we say vishwa guru or when the mother of pondicherry when she gives the message that india uh, must be the guru of the world so what what does this really mean and i think there is an answer for us there because indian nationalism is not opposed to uh, a broader movement of world unity and sympathy with broader global movements uh, it is not something that is antagonistic on the contrary it would be a mistake to think about internationalism as something where we give up our identities and sort of merge into some sort of globalized homogeneity it would be a terrible mistake and it is here that indian nationalism has answers for us because on one hand if you think about nationalism it is essentially a problem or a question of identity and from our very earliest uh, historical cultural uh, civilizational period we have been fascinated as a people by the question of identity if you go through the upanishads which is one of our foundational texts you will see they are all about identity who are we who is the self who are we as 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 a person as an individual 
and there is one idea which has been beautifully expressed by the speakers before me is that the notion of the self being one and also many so bharat ji mentioned about these some of these important ideas that come down to us and so this this notion of oneness being rooted in oneness and yet being capable of manifesting in many and so when we speak about nationalism and internationalism i think here there is a very important uh, point to make that indian nationalism is able to reconcile this this problem in a way that many other cultures or many other intellectual approaches rather i would say are not able to do so and nationalism again when you think of it in the modern context coming more specifically to your question almost seems to have a bad uh, you know almost seems to be a bad word in the west and this is again because of the experience of nationalism through the 20th century so when you see how movements in the 20th early to mid 20th century led to nationalism being hijacked by very strongly uh, you know sort of xenophobic a word was used earlier xenophobic forces very uh, narrow limited notions of identity took over that word and we saw what happened in europe in the name of nationalism and so there is an automatic association of nationalism with something very negative and it remains to this day to some extent the moment you say nationalism there is almost a recoil in uh, the mind of many people because they feel oh this is a danger you are going down a dangerous path and there is of course if if it if it is indeed that sort of understanding that we have of the word then certainly there is a danger but in its inherent by its inherent spirit in its inherent nature indian nationalism when it is rooted on something fundamental and deeper again the reference to the uh, uttarpara speech and the sanatana dharma when it is rooted on that foundation it is intrinsically nationalistic and yet uh, something that Uh, uh, involves that accepts that celebrates the diversity of uh, the world so devdev ji interestingly you have talked about the uh, concept of identity and raghav ji earlier talked about the idea of civilizational nationalism so i think both of these are intimately linked as shri arvindo also sought the essence of nationalism in the content of civilization but today we have this idea and this very complex uh, contest of identity going on in india uh, that all of identities can the idea of civilization can it address all of the questions of identity for example people who consciously dissociate themselves from a sanatan identity how would this idea of civilizational nationalism how can it address them and uh, does it need to be reformulated for that where would the answer for that come from i will pose this question again to raghav ji first ki what is the essence of civilizational nationalism and how can it include people who consciously uh, and deliberately move away from the idea of that eternal civilization thank you and i think uh, this is really the core of uh, the the debate that we need to have i think it's very clear that the job of intellectuals and uh, people who think about uh, bharat in a civilizational sense uh, is twofold one is to reclaim the idea and the imagery and the sort of uh, emotion that uh, the word nationalism itself evokes uh, like uh, devdev ji just reminded us uh, and this is the burden of of vocabulary in, in that sense because we are using these words uh, drawn from a certain historical experience 
while we might have a different uh, sense of that word, it is difficult to ask all the people who carry a different memory of that to disassociate all of those other meanings and uh, sort of negotiate with that vocabulary in the way we want them to. So that is job number one. The other, uh, uh, you know, and linked to that is the question that you asked, Priyank, in the sense that uh, if some people do not share your definition, uh, how do you morally and intellectually convince them? And I think this is the job that we have ahead in the context that uh, if Bharat uh, as a idea and uh, the nationalism anchored in Bharat as a civilizational entity uh, is what we are espousing, clearly the temperament is also about debate, dialogue and assimilation. And it cannot be hegemonic. In fact, the moral, moral content of our idea of nationalism is coming from that uh, core kernel that uh, when we talk about nationalism, we do not impose or we do not seek to impose the idea of what we have on you. That has not been the Sanatana Dharma way. Right? There are four challenges to this, and, and scholars have written about this. I've read uh, Jaydeep uh, Mazumdarji write about this quite a bit. Firstly, the idea of uh, when we say civilizational nationalism, uh, obviously we we anchor on the idea of dharma, and Kapil Kapoorji uh, says it in his inevitable style that Bharat has a unwritten five thousand year old one word constitution, and that is dharma. There is a received meaning, there is a lived meaning, and there is an intellectual understanding of this word for those who come from within the culture. Right? But we are trying to negotiate, have a dialogue with people who probably don't and have a different intellectual compass. So there is a challenge uh, in a world that is organized as nation states, historically or otherwise, uh, you know, this has come to be a reality. We are recognized uh, as nation states today and there are boundaries and all of world affairs are carried out as uh, nation states dealing with each other. So for those of us who are espousing a civilizational state view, there are a few questions and a few challenges that we need to answer. First would be, if your core idea is dharma as a civilization, and if you are also going to anchor on history and say that uh, the Indian civilization, uh, you know, on the basis of dharma and on the basis of its metaphysics, spread all over the world in a non-conquering, uh, non-hegemonic way. Uh, but let's say it has, lived, uh, it has left its impressions uh, all the way up to Southeast Asia and perhaps, uh, you know, going into Europe. What do you consider to be a civilization? Would you consider those lands to be part of your civilization today? Why would they accept uh, if that is the question? So there is the uh, job that we have to do of articulating what we mean by civilizational state in the context of Dharma and also saying that we draw from our historical experience of Dharma being the basis for the world. Right? Secondly, uh, there is a challenge of uh, explaining in more Kutodian terms, right? in more uh, everyday terms, what does a civilizational nationalism really mean? How is it different? As a normal person going about my life on a day-to-day -day basis, what are the things that are impacted if we were to anchor on civilizational nationalism as opposed to, uh, let's say, civic nationalism or as opposed to territorial nationalism? Right? So there, I think, uh, uh, you know, we'll have to bring out the dynamics of uh, what your cultural experience is going to be and what is also going to be your national strategy uh, and it has to acquire some kind of doctrinal power for people to follow. At this point, I don't think uh, we have the doctrinal power. Uh, we have the imagery and we have the vision of what a civilizational nationalism looks like. But I think there is a lot of uh, intellectual, academic, scholarly and cultural work pending to, uh, you know, to try and infuse a little bit of a doctrine into it. Right? 
Uh, also, the, the the challenge is that uh, as as a world organized in nation states, and when we say uh, we are a dharmic culture and Bharatiya nationalism is Sanatana Dharma, by definition, it also means that uh, those nation states which are let's say uh, you know grounded in a theocracy or a theology or a religion that do not accept dharma, how do you deal with that? Uh, in a in a geopolitical geoeconomic sense, what are the real trade offs? We really cannot say that we will not deal, uh, you know, with Saudi Arabia uh, in trade, for example. Right? How do you how do you locate your dialogue with all of them? So this is uh, uh, this is the work that we need to have, uh, or, or we need that is pending, uh, to articulate what the vision of civilizational state is, or a civilizational nationalism is, and how it maps and deals with the rest of the world. It has already organized itself into a certain paradigm. Does it mean that there is no example or uh, there is no uh, logic to the argument of civilizational nationalism? Uh, I would say no. Broadly, the moral vision for civilizational nationalism comes from the vision that we have of what it can do to Indians themselves. And this is uh, when we talk about the deepest spiritual fount that Bharatji mentioned and Devdivji also alluded to. Uh, there is really no, uh, uh, you know, there is no really uh, risk or uh, there is absolutely no content that excludes in that vision. Uh, yes, we need to have a dialogue with people who do not profess that identity, but that identity is not an exclusivist identity. So I think the challenge is for us to convince the rest of, let's say the uh, Indian population itself who does not share this idea, that this is not a hegemonic or a, this is not a exclusivist idea that seeks to impose itself and that it seeks to derive political capital out of creating divisions in a multi-party competitive polity. I think we need to decouple the idea of civilizational nationalism from the politics of uh, democracy. And we need to articulate a superior vision for what it means to human experience. So that is the work that we need to do internally, even as we cogitate on what is what does it mean in terms of India's engagements as a nation state, as others identify us. Uh, and how does it redraw our relationships with the rest of the world? I will invite uh, Devdeep Ganguliji to answer the same question. The question again is uh, whether the idea of nationalism, uh, the frame in which we are talking about, can it answer all the questions of identity that we face today? Whether we need to reformulate or recombine the idea of nationalism or identity itself? And can we seek answers to these questions in the works of thinkers like Sri Aurobindo? So yes, I mean, certainly I think the answers are there. Um, Raghavji gave a very, uh, very cogent, you know, intellectual uh, uh, answer to the question that you have put in terms of the work that has to be done and the paradigms that have to be developed. Uh, when we speak about Shravindo, there is one uh, text of his which came to my mind. It's actually a text that he wrote in Bengali uh, in a journal called Dharma, which was published in December 1909, where he takes up this issue uh, and addresses it. Uh, which, which, and I just want to read out a passage if I'm if I'm uh, permitted to, because I think that on one hand there is there is a work that has to be done at many levels. So there is the there is the intellectual work of developing a paradigm that fits in all these different aspects under an umbrella which everyone can uh, feel a part of. There is also a work of the heart, a work of feeling, because that is where the roots are. There has to be a sentiment. It is not so much intellectual conviction in the end, but a sentiment which transcends 
uh, these things. And so here there is something which Shrovinder writes, which I, I find very inspiring. He says, the country and nothing but the country is the foundation of nationalism. Neither the nation nor religion, nothing else matters. All other elements are secondary and contributory. It is the country alone that is primary and essential. Many mutually exclusive races live in the land. Perhaps there, there, there never was enough goodwill, unity or friendliness. What is there in that to worry about? Please note that he's writing this at a time when we, we, we are not an independent country, where all these questions have not been resolved in any form, right? So they're all burning questions in a certain sense. So he says, what is there in that to worry about? When it is one country, one mother, there is bound to be unity one day. And out of the union of many races shall emerge a strong and invincible nation. Our religious views may differ. There might be endless conflict among the communities, neither concordance nor any hope of concordance. Still one need not have any misgivings. By the powerful magnetic attraction of the mother embodied in the country, by fair means or foul, whether by mutual understanding or by force or by appeasement, harmony will be achieved. Communalism, separation will be drowned in fraternal feelings, in a common love and worship of the mother. And then a little further on, he says, he continues the same idea. He says, one need not fear. There, he says, there is nothing permanent about these obstacles. It's a very beautiful passage. He says, this is a law of nature, the lesson of history everywhere. The country is the base of nationalism and inevitable bond. When there is a country of one's own, nationalism is bound to be there. On the other hand, if the country is not one, even if the race, the religion and the language are the same, nothing will come of that. So I think it is really about looking deeper into ourselves and seeing where is that sense of, where is that fount of feeling where we feel one? Because uh, the, the, um, if we go into these specific religious debates and discussions, uh, we will find ourselves hitting against a wall at some point, because there is a certain mutual exclusivity about certain traditions that you cannot, that you cannot get over. But there is a fundamental sense of unity which transcends these theological debates. And that is where we must find our sense of uh, nationalism, irrespective of the differences that people might have. Uh... I would like to add here that uh, at the end of this uh, discussion, we will be inviting questions. So if you have any questions, you can send them on chat and we will take a few of those. So the question here, uh, I would like to just extend the argument that we have been having. So we heard the phrase Indian exceptionalism uh, a few times in today's discussion and also in the keynote address and the inaugural address. So a question that comes here is uh, when we are making India the uh, ground of our thinking and we are talking about Indian exceptionalism, what exactly is the character of Indian exceptionalism, not just at the level of thought, but also uh, in our practical reality today and not simply as a practical reality, but also in the realm of possibility. So I invite both of the participants to deliberate on this question. Where do we look for the idea of Indian exceptionalism today? We can begin with Raghavji. Sure, yeah. And I've uh, I've reflected on this question uh, uh, you know, more uh, also as an exercise to be clear uh, in our own uh, advocacy, right? If we are taking a certain position, what is the prayojana? What is the lokasamgraha that comes out of it? And ultimately, governance is service. And Devdeepji really uh, uh, 
you know, elevated the conversation when he read out uh, uh, Sri Aurobindo's vision. And as always, and, and this is amazing how many times this happens to me personally, all of the questions somehow seem to find an answer uh, in Sri Aurobindo's writings and, and uh, constantly wondered uh, at the grace of our gurus and particularly Sri Aurobindo uh, in a personal experience, where a lot of these questions seem to have uh, been anticipated and provided for, not just in an intellectual sense, uh, but also in the sense of sadhana, right? In the sense that uh, there is a consciousness preparation that has happened for us to draw uh, and you know be able to articulate and live these ideas, right? So what are those, uh, what are those constituent elements? What are the uh, elements that comprise Indian exceptionalism if we are to advocate this? One, at a strategic level, if you look at, uh, look at it like any other nation, this is a story that you give yourself and you go out and tell the story to the world and deal with the world. That could be one way to think about it. And lastly, this is how all exceptionalisms, in my understanding, are sort of formulated. Right? You say you are manifest destiny or you say you are the center of the world or you are the empire and everybody else is a periphery and you deal with the world uh, with the story that you give in yourself. It is given the name of grand strategy or it is, uh, you know, it is given as a doctrine to the nations itself. But I don't think uh, those approaches quite sum up uh, what Bharat's attitude will be or what uh, is really a representation of Sanatan Dharma. And the one area where I find uh, the, uh, the real answer to how Indian exceptionalism is inextricably linked to global welfare is in the idea of ecology and environment. We are going through a period of massive planetary crisis and uh, you know, science tells us, uh, our own lived experience tells us that uh, Anthropocene is real and, and there, is, uh, there is a real risk that human actions have reached a stage which have very, very profound consequences uh, uh, for our own existence not so much for the uh, future of planet, uh, but for the survival of uh, humans as a race or as a, as a collective. So the question really, some of the grand challenges that we have in the world today are about uh, how do you manage or, or how do you uh, solve or how do you even approach solving uh, a situation where we have expanded the uh, resource utility and therefore the choice that is available to us uh, and therefore, it has also created a certain samskara. It has created a certain habit. It has created a certain idea of life for 10 billion people. Uh, but you're also reaching the limits of uh, Earth's ability or planet's ability to provide for that. Right? Ultimately, all of us, whether you are uh, you know, uh, in US or in China or India, fundamentally are in the pursuit of joy. That is the foundational basis for any human experience. And this is also the basis for India's nationalism, that it has to provide for a way of experiencing Sukha. Now, we have equated Sukha with materialism or consumption. There is a certain idea that as you ascend a quality of life that is able to consume more, that is the joy and that is the definition of joy. And now we have a problem of scaling it up to 10 billion people because this is a story that we've told them in a globalized world because the whole idea of uh, or, or the moral and intellectual promise of globalization is that it would uplift the standards of life, which is, you know, equated to consumption for 10 billion people across the world and therefore free trade and organizing ourselves as nation states getting into unilateral and bilateral arrangements is morally and intellectually the right thing to do. Okay. But there is a recognition that the story is beginning to fade. 
the data is staring at us. Uh, SDGs, as we call them, the vocabulary used for formulating this, the Sustainable Development Goals, formulated in 2015. And a review of those by 2020 tells us that we are not only not making progress on any of those goals, we are actually making a regress on each of the important ecological and uh, economic and uh, human uh, welfare-related uh, sustainable development goals committed to by the Committee of Nations and with tremendous intellectual capital and other resources put together over five years has led us to a situation where we are making a regress and not progress. Right? So clearly as a collective, regardless of whether it is American exceptionalism, Chinese exceptionalism or Indian exceptionalism, there is currently a trajectory for all of us as humanity, which is not looking healthy. Right? I situate the idea of Indian exceptionalism drawing from the fount of uh, philosophy of Upanishads, from Vedas, and of course, articulated uh, uh, and, and brought to us uh, in our experience uh, through the words of Sri Aurobindo, Swami Vivekananda in more recent times, as something that is capable of defining joy in a slightly different way or, or you know, profoundly different way, if you want to put it that way. And that is the only sustainable way for 10 billion people to live exercise their agency, find happiness, and be within the planetary boundaries and ecological ceilings. Right? To me, uh, when we talk about uh, the Indian exceptionalism, it comes from the idea of going within to find other sources of joy, to actually go into the infinite expanse of your own uh, soul or heart that Devdipji mentioned. And actually, that is the vision that we carry to the world, not just as a gospel uh, that Sri Aurobindo also uh, you know, really exhorted us to, but also as an urgent imperative for global governance to pay attention to. So I locate uh, the moral uh, content of India's exceptionalism in the way it is able to provide uh, a means for people to experience joy at scale, because we keep hearing this word scale in a business and uh, uh, in a national context. I think what we need to think about when you talk about scale is really how do you, how do you enable pursuit of happiness and joy in a meaningful and sustainable way at scale to 10 billion people. And I think India has the answer. That is our exceptionalism. And that comes from Sanatan Dharma. That's a really comprehensive answer. Uh, but I would like to pose the same question to Dev Divji again. Uh, where do we locate the spirit uh, of Indian exceptionalism? Uh, not only at the level of thought, but also in the realm of practical possibility for today and also for the future. Yeah, firstly, I just want to uh, thank Raghavji for that uh, very uh, interesting answer. I think it's a very interesting approach that he presented uh, for us, looking at it in the context of the real problems that we are facing in the world today. Uh, I, I can only, you know, uh, continue along the same lines and say that when we speak about Indian exceptionalism, we, I mean, we see already the influence of Indian thought and culture uh, in various, spreading out in various ways around the world, influencing societies and uh, people, though it happens at a much more individual level and sometimes in a more quiet way. What I mean by quiet way is that when people turn for deeper seeking or knowledge to Indian uh, knowledge systems, right? There is an, an inherent change that takes place in their, uh, in, in the way that they lead their lives. And that affects as of course, as Raghavji was saying, the way that they uh, they that they relate to joy and what they look for in their life, 
it also affects the way that they understand themselves and the world. And so for me, I would say the most important contribution of India to the world uh, and the role, this again links to what we have been discussing about Vishwaguru, because again, that is a term that can be so easily misinterpreted. If we think about Vishwaguru or uh, Guru of the world in terms of simply uh, uh, economic might or military might, and not that those are things which are not desirable. You certainly uh, re require yourself, yourselves to be prosperous and, and settled and comfortable and capable of defending yourself when necessary. But that cannot be the only approach because then it's, uh, it's no different. There is no exceptionalism then. And so the exceptionalism really comes when it draws upon the vast truth that uh, the civilization has discovered and which must now become effective. So to, you know, as a direct response to your question, I would say it is now no longer sufficient for us to look back at the past as something that is fixed and something that uh, has been that wisdom and knowledge have to be become effective in the way that we live our lives today in terms of uh, whether it's politics or ecology or, or civilization. And so that message of change, not just individually, but also spreading out to collectively message of a growth of consciousness message of moving to a higher way of being and living and bringing that inner perfection outward would be something that is a very unique to India's uh, contribution to the world. So uh, linked to that question, uh, one thing I find really interesting about Sri Arbindo's articulation of nationalism is just how expensive it is and how inclusive. So uh, as speakers have already noted, uh, the nationalism does not cancel out the global dimension of human existence. And uh, when he elevates nationalism to the spiritual level, at that level, it is connected both to humanity as a whole, but also to the individual human person. So that opens up uh, new avenues of thinking. On the same lines, uh, this is something that I wanted to ask uh, at a creative level. How do we engage with uh, globalization, forces of globalization and localization, both above and below the national level of thinking? How do we engage with them creatively using the this idea of nationalism that we have? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a very brief answer. I think uh, this requires uh, a greater exposition and greater thinking, very specific and a very directed thinking for us to uh, actually uh, take a position and i have not taken a position uh, uh, to be honest on this yet but uh Aurobindo, i think uh, you know uh, gives us the answer uh, uh, you know every actually uh, you don't even need to intellectualize it in a certain way you visit the ashram or you look at anything that uh, that is uh, uh, involved uh, uh, that that the ashram does or that shirobindo movement or shirobindo consciousness uh, generates there is a certain kind of artistic quality to it and there is a certain kind of beauty and symmetry to it. And, uh, you know, Sampadananji always reminds us of the uh, associations mother has made to flowers, right? And the gunas that she has given to uh, different flowers. All of that is actually the highest, uh, the, the work of the highest creative order in uh, essentializing nature and our interactions with nature. And this is going to be uh, uh, a central theme, I would imagine, Priyank, because 
Uh, apart from the ecology dimension, the other dimension that uh, I would say India's exceptionalism would anchor on, and then which has a huge amount of scope for creative expression, is the fact that there is a vacuum, a psychological, emotional vacuum that is pervasive in the world today. And that, you know, there is a yogic explanation to it. There is obviously a historical and materialistic explanation to it. But it is pervasive. We see it all around us. So we need creative mediums now. And uh, the mediums also are there. You know, in a certain way, I say that with the proliferation of mass media and social media today, you have a situation where Sanskrit and Pali go together. Right? You, have, you can have an idea that diffuses itself extremely uh, effectively in, in multiple mediums in a highly localized way. And you also have the source material in your civilization in the form of stories, anecdotes, multiple philosophies, really the multi-sided flowering of the human mind that Sri Aurobindo spoke about. And he always reminds us that it was not a culture that was dormant. It does not leave any space. In fact, in his reposte to, uh, you know, to the Western uh, thinking and Western accusation about Indian culture and Indian art, he gives us a glorious explanation of the Indian thinking and how it finds an expression uh, in the world around us. Right? So he gave us the sequence that you first realize the spiritual vision, you understand the philosophies, you bring it down to art and then finally to polity. Right? The, the sequence is given to us. And I think in all of these spheres, uh, there is tremendous scope for creative expression today. And that I think uh, also is the, uh, you know, in, in a certain way, uh, at Rastrum, we think of ourselves as uh, civilizational interlocutors, right? We are trying to be the bridge between civilizational knowledge systems, civilizational essence, and uh, you know, our own generations, uh, 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 generation and generations to come, who are trying to find uh, uh, a more reliable anchor uh, than just the idea of material uh, pursuit gives them, right? So I think uh, whether it is, uh, digital media, whether it is storytelling, whether it is uh, dialogue, uh, whether it is a new uh, creative way of dialectic, all of these uh, ideas and formats are available to us for the first time to actually, uh, you know, to actually be the purveyors of the consciousness that Sri Aurobindo meditated to bring down, you know, in a certain sense to, to our realm. We now have the medium to actually, or, or the sort of uh, global village concept to actually spread that. Uh, I don't have an answer for what is the exact format and the exact avenues? What I see is that the conditions are fertile. So, Devdeep ji, you have already talked about uh, talked about uh, nationalism as a work of feeling, along with uh, a work of thought. So, would you like to add something to what Raghav ji has already said? So, just a little bit to say that when we talk about globalization and localization, again, these are all terms which have layers of meaning. You can have you can understand globalization in terms of homogeneity, which is again something which is very which is completely uh, you know negative and something that goes against the spirit of uh, 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 of, of of unity or of a deeper understanding that we are trying to develop here. But you can also have globalization in the sense of uh, being receptive and open to other cultures and learning about them and growing and widening yourself in many ways. And that can be something very positive. Again, localization, when we speak about localization, if it is putting yourself, surrounding yourself, uh, you know, in a cage, in a wall, and then saying, this is the only thing that is of interest to me, it becomes something which is not progressive. And on the other hand, you can only know the world when you know yourself. And so a full uh, development of your own tradition and culture and, and 
to be truly rooted in what is yourself is gives you a basis to better engage and interpret and understand and relate to the world around you. And so I think both these movements have to be seen in the right spirit. And uh, perhaps there is a reconciliation which is possible between what appears to be contradictory, but is in fact uh, not in essence. So we have some interesting questions coming in and I would like now to pose them to uh, the panelists. Uh, so, uh, Prakash Nayarji asks, uh, if Sri Arvindoji spoke of Atmanirbharta, how can the idea of Atmanirbharta be related to Sri Arvindo's thought? Uh, I would like to pose this question to Devdeep Gangulijji. So, there is one interesting, uh, uh, so Atmanirbharta, of course, if I understand correctly, is in relation to the policy of the government to encourage, uh, you know, uh, uh, local industry, manufacturing, and so on. So there is one one interesting uh, uh, reference here. When Shravindo was working with the Maharaja of Baroda, uh, that is after he came back from England. So after eighteen, uh, you know, for for about before he entered the political period, so early twentieth century, in the early nineteen hundreds, and the late eighteen hundreds. So there is a speech. He used to often write speeches for the Maharaja. And there is one speech where he talks about industry, developing of industry. And it's a very interesting uh, speech. And of course, now we can't take that as something that is, uh, uh, you know, he, you cannot take something that was written more than 100 years ago and say that this is as relevant today as it was then. But it is interesting to note how much he stresses on the importance of developing commerce and industry for the growth of uh, the, uh, the state that he was uh, you know, associated with at that point of time. But beyond that, it's not a term that he refers to uh, in any direct way. So another interesting question that we have is, uh, how can we imbibe the spirit of Vasudevam Sarvamiti, uh, inclusivity of nature and matter? How can the challenge is to incorporate this uh, spirit in the education system and culture? What can be the roadmap for it? Uh, both of you are free to take this question. Well, uh, we are currently running a faculty development program spread over 19 days on uh, India's knowledge systems uh, to, to answer precisely this question. Right? Uh, I think it would be an illusion if we say that we've got all figured. Uh, but it's not. Actually, uh, what we call a civilization is an inheritance of this wisdom, of this ability to just live together uh, in, in all our complexity, in all our diversity, uh, in all of our uh, frailty as well as, as humans uh, trying to live with nature, this has been not just codified, but also given a beautiful pedagogical uh, uh, elevation in the form of Itihasa, Purana, stories that are available to us. What we're trying to do, and, and uh, Devdeep Ji reminded us, Anirbanji's message had that essence. Bharat Ji, of course, anchored his entire message on that. In a lot of ways, uh, uh, this is not about trying to uh, create new knowledge always. There is some component of that because the context changes. But it is uh, a creative reconciliation of what you already have with your current context. And there is uh, uh, a lot of research material already available to us in the form of uh, blueprints on education. Bharatji himself, in his book, uh, Indian Culture uh, Decline or Revival, has given what I consider to be uh, still one of the best pieces on education that I've seen. 
So give you a quick example of what this means. Right? Uh, we, all, we all must have heard that the Bharatiya education vision did not have the separation of humanities, arts and sciences into silos. It was truly an integrated vision. And that is why you see mathematics expressed as poetry. Now, what does, what does it really mean? How does this mind flower? Uh, why was it separated? It got separated because there was a certain kind of uh, need to create specialized professions uh, for the industry. Right? That, that is the form that uh, the academic structure took. And therefore, as a result of that, all of us go through a system which looks at uh, engineering, computer sciences, management, arts, literature, philosophy, as separate dispar disparate streams, uh, which was not the vision of education in India. Imagine learning about mathematics, visiting a temple. You are sitting in a temple and you're trying to understand trigonometry by looking at what are the, you know, uh, what are the equations that play if you were to be in that temple. That is just one example of a creative pedagogical leap that we can take to teach mathematics in a, in a, in a, in a environment that is real and in a, in a way that you can touch feel. A lot of this research is going on in Rastrum as well currently in all of our programs. Uh, there is at least uh, a, a list of 10 pedagogical methods, uh, you know, the aphoristic method, the sutra method, the dialectic method, the question and answer method. All of these tools have been used if we are able to just access our own knowledge systems. So the answer to your question is, uh, we go back and study not just the content, but also the creative uh, transmission mechanisms that have been created by the civilization. And in doing that, we would be able to find ideas that uh, you know, we can hang on to and we contemporize that. Devdeepji, you have worked on uh, the concept and practice of education. Would you like to add to that question? Um, if you don't mind, can you repeat the question once more? Yeah, yeah. The question is, how can the spirit of Vasudevam Sarvamiti, the inclusivity of nature and matter, how can be implemented in education system and culture? Is there any roadmap that can be made for it? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, yeah, it's a question with, you know, which requires a lot of thought and uh, application of a lot of minds to come together and to really think deeply about how these ancient approaches can become uh, living truths today. It's one thing to speak about them or, or talk about them in a philosophical sense. How does one convey it and make them part of our daily existence? So that is really the challenge. Um, I, I can't really say much about this because I think it requires a lot more, uh, you know, time and thinking on the part of many people. Here in Pondicherry at the school, at the ashram school, it, it's a, it's something which is, um, I would say th there is something which is conveyed through the education here, which is not systematized, but which is conveyed through the atmosphere through the atmosphere of the environment of course of the mother's physical presence when she was there but even i would say today just the atmosphere of the ashram and the people who come here primarily inspired by their vision and that itself conveys something and so one of the most important tools in education especially when subtler things have to be conveyed i feel is when you're surrounded by people who are trying to live that truth in their life, uh, it, it is often a more persuasive example 
than uh, being told being told mentally that you need to do this. And so I think growing up here in Pondicherry, we were fortunate that there were people around us who, in to the extent that they could, were seeking out these deeper ideas that you just referenced to in your question, and that itself conveys something that that it, it brings something into the atmosphere for those who are ready for those who have some opening it can leave quite a strong mark and i think this is something that was also understood in the ancient perspective very strongly which is why you had the whole system of the gurukul and the 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 teacher was one who was not just somebody who knew mentally but who was also a living embodiment of the principles that he or she taught and uh, there is i would end with uh, one sentence of the mother where she says you know the, the teacher must be a yogi so the the, the ideal teacher is one who is living uh, a deeper life we will take just one last question this question is addressed to rashtram especially but i think it has a broad relevance because we are talking about the practical reality of things uh, so this question, I think uh, Raghavji would like to address this. The question is, how does Rashtram uh, plan to reach out to Indian masses and global masses to explain the universal diversity and inclusion of uh, Sanatan Dharma as a universal principle? If you can explain it from an outside-in perspective. Sure. Yeah. Uh, thank you for this question. And uh, I know that this is uh, not a forum set up to talk about Rashtram, but since it has come up, uh, uh, I'll try and explain very briefly what we are attempting to do. Uh, we think of ourselves uh, uh, as an interlocutor institution, uh, and uh, our concern is to build self-aware and civilizationally assured public leadership. And this is also, uh, uh, you know, like I mentioned, Sri Aravindo's thought and philosophy looms large. And uh, uh, in our conception, when we think about uh, the challenges that we have as a nation and civilization today, we see that uh, the, the sort of flow that you expect in a civilization has been hindered because of a certain kind of incoherence between three fundamental realms. Right? And I go back to also link it to the idea of nationalism itself. Uh, we spoke about identity. Uh, but the two other anchors or two other concerns of a civilization or nation would be stability and prosperity. How do you recognize who you are? How do you come together? And how do you then generate prosperity for a large number of people who are able to then you know, take part in your national vision? And this we equate to the idea of uh, Icha Shakti, Jnana Shakti and Kriya Shakti, uh, which is also uh, inspired by Sri Aurobindo's uh, conception of Bharata Shakti itself. And in that, we, are, we try to map out the realms in the society today that are responsible for stitching this vision together. So if you think about uh, Icha, uh, then the, uh, you know, the realm is obviously the political leadership or uh, the direct representation that happens because policy comes from that class. If you think about Jnana Shakti, then you also need to have a certain kind of coherence and a certain kind of idea in academic leadership. You need academic institutions or universities, spaces of learning, which are grounded in this kind of thought. There is no bigger uh, uh, force multiplier than uh, education itself. 
So there is Gnana Shakti that we have in the form of academic spaces, which produce the ideas of identity about who we are. There is Icha Shakti in the context of political will, which has to go through a representative process for it to reside in the minds and hearts of people. And finally, all of this has to lead to Kriya Shakti, which really comes uh, from the society. It's not the state that produces the prosperity. It is the creative enterprise of people, all of us coming together who produce prosperity. So our philosophy is that uh, Icha Shakti, Nana Shakti and Kriya Shakti, which are represented by the realms in the society that we have today, politics, academia and civil society, they have to come together in the grand vision of Bharata Shakti. Uh, we have to first create enough number of people who internalize this idea. But in the process of doing this, you have to have an anchor. And that anchor is the civilizational knowledge systems. Ultimately, what we conceptualize as Bharat, uh, at least in our imagination, is not just the political experience or the social experience, but also the deeper spiritual knowledge system-based experience, which gives us our culture, which gives us our uh, moorings, so to speak. Right? If you are able to do that, uh, and if you are able to link it, and you might have seen this in the context of our conversation over the last one hour, my concern, and, and as a representative of uh, the institution, my concern is how does our knowledge system inform the world today? What are the problems that the world is facing today? What are the problems that are likely to come up tomorrow? And do our knowledge systems have a way of addressing those, anticipating those, preempting those and resolving those and offering that as a service to the entire world? And we believe the answer is a affirmative, non-apologetic yes. We, we, we will be able to do that. And if we are able to create a, a, a format of education and a format of public policy thinking, so at the top level, you are working with the most important force or the most important actor that you have in any modern uh, nation state, which is the idea of the state itself, which comes through us as public policy, which impacts all of our lives. So therefore, at the higher level, you have at the top level, you have the idea of public policy and governance, which has to be informed and influenced by India's knowledge systems and Bharatiya Jnana Parampara. At the culture and lived experience level, you also need this to percolate, which is through the medium of education. Our idea is if we are successful in creating leadership education anchored in this philosophy with creative pedagogies that is applicable and valuable to the world, this is a format that we can then offer to the rest of the nation in planting this into as many educational institutions as possible, as many governance institutions as possible. Right? This becomes the software that we provide to the hardware that we have in the context of universities and uh, in the context of uh, uh, political institutions and economic institutions. So that really is the work. And I think uh, decade is, is a good enough time for us to uh, try and target this. Uh, and, and that is where we think of scale. The scale is, of course, all of this also leads to investing in people. Ultimately, all of, uh, uh, you know, all of these ideas, all of uh, uh, our vision has to be seeded deeply into the hearts and minds of people. And that is why there is a leadership development program. So you're creating individuals who try and embody the spirit, but you're also trying to create the intellectual, philosophical, cultural assets and policy thinking around this, which can go and uh, you know reside in multiple institutions. So Vaibhavji, to answer your question, our idea is to invest in people at the same time, create material that can also inform institutions. That answer uh, brings us to an and brings an end to uh, today's discussion and also to the uh, third edition of Vechariki. Uh, for me personally, it was two and a half hours of pure learning. It has given me inspiration to connect with uh, works of people like Sri Arvindo. Uh, and that is something I will be doing really uh, soon. Uh, 
I would like to extend my thanks to uh, Professor Bharat Guptaji for the uh, inaugural address in which he stressed the uh, relevance of Sri Aurobindo's unequivocal uh, equation of nationalism to Sanatan Dharma. I would also like to thank Dr. Anirvan Gangulji for his uh, an hour-long deliberation on how the spirit of Indian nationalism is uh, thriving, only thriving and getting stronger in India today. I would like to thank both the panelists, uh, Raghav Krishnaji and Devdeep Gangulji for that very enriching discussion that we had today. And uh, I would also like to thank all the viewers, all the participants for being a part of this wonderful discussion. And uh, I hope it was meaningful and useful for all of us. And you are all also welcome to the fourth edition of Vechariki, which we will be having soon. Thank you. Namaste. Priyank, if I can just uh, say a last word, uh, uh, I think uh, Anirbanji and uh, Bharat Gupji also mentioned about uh, Sri Aurobindo's vision uh, in the confinement of that cell, right? And he had a vision of Vasudeva. I see the image of Krishna behind you. Uh, and I, you know, my first reaction was that, uh, you know, uh, the consciousness of Vasudeva is all around. Uh, thank you for uh, moderating this. Thank you also. Uh, thank Abhishek. you. Uh, wonderful uh, speaking. Thank you, Devdeepji. Thank you very much.